Hi, you're listening to Movable Heads, a Deadwood podcast at Movieville. I'm Soren Howe, and I'm here with Josh Rosenfield, and we're going to be discussing Bullock Returns to the Camp, which is the seventh episode of season one of Deadwood. Um, so this was uh, this was a very different episode, I think. This was a I don't know. I, I I got this impression as I was watching that this didn't feel quite like any of the episodes we've had before. I don't know if you got that impression. No, definitely. Um, yeah, I agree. It, right off the bat, um, it, it feels a lot. The flow of it, I think, is is much different and much, uh, very un TV. I found until the end. I think by the end, it kind of it falls into a rhythm that's a little more familiar, or maybe I just mm-hmm. got kind of got used to it. But um, like right off the bat with the uh, fade to black after the first scene. Like you don't see that on TV. That just yeah, that doesn't happen. Yeah, that's weird. I noticed that. You know? I was like I was like why are we doing that? And it's a was slow it just, fade. just time or or it was kind I, of an odd like transition. It's a very well it's a very cinematic transition I found. And I think it you know it, it an almost like classically cinematic transition. It's because I said it's it's not just a fade to black. It's very slow. It's like it's like almost methodical. Um it's it's or like not methodical, but more like leisurely, I guess. Sure, yeah. Um, and, and yeah, you just don't see that on television. Uh, you never see fades to black unless it's like going to commercial, um, or someone gets knocked out or something like that. Yeah, and usually they, and even then, it's never so slow. It's it's usually like very quick because you got to keep the show moving. Mm-hmm. Um, but this felt it, it really, I think, emphasized kind of the gravity of what's going on in this moment because it's before they is it before or after they find him? I don't remember. I think they had just found him and slung him on the... Uh... Right, yeah, exactly. So I think it. I, I, it's really, it's a nice... It's good because it's it's clearly like meant to be kind of a punctuation mark on that on that story. Right. Um, But it's not like an exclamation point. <laughs> it's very much just like, okay, and now this is over and we're kind of slowly moving away from it. And it, it, it emphasizes, I think, um, emotionally, like what Bullock is going through, which he talks about later in the episode. Like he's he doesn't feel... Um, you know, enraged, like he—he's not walking. You know, because of his encounter with the with the Native American man, he doesn't feel so you know furious with McCall that he just walks in and shoots him. Right. He's will. He is tempered enough that he's that he you know takes him to the to the feds, I guess. And I think that that fade to black is a really nice way of communicating that emotional state, not just a Bullock, but you like know by extension, down kind of thing. Yeah, and the scene as a whole too. Um, yeah, I think that's. That is an interesting point, um, but the two things I'll just point out on that front. One, Bullock was a pissed-off person before any of this happened with Bill. <laughs> so it's kind of funny to see this, like, what else is he taking out his anger about? It's not just McCall, it has to have been other stuff as well. Um, so that's kind of interesting. And the other thing, I think it also it does represent a, a little bit of a time jump, because you have to be willing to accept that, um, you know, later in this episode, Charlie and and Seth show up in the town again. Yeah, and so, Al says that Al uh, says at one point that uh, that um, it's been ten days since uh, at least since um, since Farnham came back and told him that uh, Alma was taking the dope. Right, right, exactly, right. We do get a little bit of a, a hint on that front in terms of time. So I think that it, it also communicates that in some ways too. And we see all the characters have changed significantly i think in this small little uh well not all the characters but a lot of characters have changed significantly in this little gap um yeah so i find it interesting so there was uh 
there's that moment where you, you're pretty sure that Seth's going to kill McCall, and he doesn't. He just hits him on the back of the head and throws him, and they, they take him back to, to the town uh, to turn him over to the authorities. Uh, and then later, Seth actually says to, I think he's talking to Saul, and he says that um, the Indian guy saved McCall's life by <laughs> sort of being the punching bag for all of his anger. Um, and he feels really conflicted about that, which also is, is kind of interesting as well. Um, yeah, well, because he talks about like um, uh, what Charlie tells him about like what he <laughs> about how he he had to you know lay hands on you to kill you because otherwise it wouldn't be honorable, right, right, right. and um, and how the way he's describing it is so furious, but it's clearly like it's clearly because he feels bad about what he did because he I think he sees kind of the um this is me this word has some implications i think given the subject matter but like some nobility in yeah. you know but you know but he does in terms of his then this guy's intentions and and what he was fighting for and i think he does you know despite being the the victim of it he respects that and he feels bad about having to be so uh not having to be but about being so vicious in how he responded to it. Right, right. And he does he does really take it out on him as he points out. It's funny, he has like the conversation we had in our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of funny, just just monologuing about it to um to Saul. Um so yeah, that was interesting. I also liked uh so we got to see I had totally forgotten that we ever got to see a, um another camp. So we got a little bit of this other camp um that was I guess some some distance away in the beginning. Um and I like that He's already built that. Uh, McCall's already built up a sort of a crap rep- reputation at this new place. <laughs> like immediately, yeah. The guy like immediately sells him out. He's like, "Oh yeah, he's over there. He's a jerk." And then, <laughs> and they're like, "Oh, we just want to buy his ho- offer, make an offer on his horse." And when they're slinging him over the horse, he's like, um, "So you wanted to uh, soften him up some before you make your offer?" Um, so they're clearly <laughs> everyone was more than happy to see him leave. Uh, so I think that's that was kind of a there's a little bit of justice in that. Um. So yeah, this was a this was kind of a, an interesting way. To, it it does feel like a a coda or a you know a conclusion to this other storyline that we got last episode. But I, and it almost made more sense in this episode. Not to you know not to stick it on to uh, last week. I think last week ended really nicely in that storyline with the with the chimes and keeping it in the daytime and keeping it consistent in that. Um, yeah, and that, opening in the night now. Yeah, and this was a yeah, this was a bit different. very dark too. I don't know if how much of that was to hide the set because I assume that they didn't build a fully fleshed out set for <laughs> right, right. this very brief scene. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it it's worked. A, I mean, yeah, absolutely, it looked real. I just yeah, who knows? Um, it's also interesting. This other place has like you know walls and a watch and stuff. It's very different than Deadwood in that yeah. way, and everyone seems a lot more on edge there. Oh, I um, love when they walk in. <laughs> when they walk in. <laughs> And everyone immediately, first of all, everyone immediately gets the vibe of these two. Oh, yeah. So there's already people, like, moving away. But as soon as they say, we're friends of Bill Hickok, like, people are hiding everyone, under the Everyone, like, tables. leaves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. That was really good. Um, yeah, and, and so they, they, the show is really communicating that, oh, you know, this this is about to go down. McCall's about to get shot. And then they don't. You know, he just hits him. Um, and he says, you know, you don't deserve anything more than this anyway. But I think it's interesting... Uh, it kind of reminds me a little bit in this moment of, uh, uh, you know, in Firefly, the uh, illustrious captain, uh, Mal, says something similar. Well, he, he says something similar as uh, to what Seth actually does here, which is that, you know, he's he's not really interested in shooting someone in the back. Uh, you know, he's if you're going to die, that you're going to die sort of facing him. And, and 
uh, and you're going to be armed. And so in this moment, I the reason I thought of that is that it's interesting because Seth's sense of honor and whatever his code is does come to the surface in a way that we haven't seen recently because he's been so consumed by his emotional state. Uh, so that was kind of cool. Yeah. Um, and then we see a pretty radical change for him. And also, just an interesting point, he has got a major scar from this. Yeah, right? I didn't realize it was so bad, um, but it's pretty brutal. I wonder how consistent they're going to keep that going forward. Because, I mean, a lot of TV shows, I think, would kind of, like, by the next episode, it would just be gone. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, and I won't I won't knock the show if that happens, because I understand that it's just keeping up with that makeup uh, is, is a real pain. Right. Um, but I always appreciate when shows um, keep that stuff consistent. Like, um, <laughs> here's a weird reference, but you know what? Uh, I, you you love to reference, like, Spartacus every episode, oh, so yeah. I'm going to reference my favorite show. Uh, if you've heard of a little show called Steven Universe. Oh, God, yeah. Um, okay. In season one, there's an episode where Steven and these characters, Lars and Sadie, get trapped on this island. And um, I don't remember how exactly it happens, but Sadie is fighting this, like, I think she's fighting this monster, and she gets this, like, big scratch under her eye. Mm-hmm. And um, now, like, I think 80 episodes later, she she's still drawn with a scar under her eye. Oh, that's cool. And it it, it has gotten, like, fainter over time, over her, the course of her appearances, but it's really? still there. <laughs> and it's, like, such a great, it, it's a great example, something the show does so well is continuity. Mm-hmm. And that's a, it's a perfect example of, like, it could have... Any other show is certainly of that, you know, type. It would have just been forgotten the next episode because cartoons kind of operate. They t- tend to operate on that kind of like uh, on no continuity. Everything is just reset to the status quo by the right, end of every right, episode. Right. Um, but I always appreciate, <coughs> I always appreciate when shows kind of go out of their way to keep continuity, even when it's just tiny little things. Um, right. I would imagine it's a bit easier in drawing too. Like if oh yeah, certainly arm, you can just not draw them with an arm ever again you know it's just a bit yeah, yeah. but but that is definitely something you see and i was trying to think because it was my comparison of course would be avatar and uh yeah no one really gets one permanently injured i think in that i mean zuko's obviously injured but before the show starts so it's just sort of part of his appearance um yeah yeah i guess i haven't really seen that in a in any animated shows uh in this case i guess it depends on how significant the scar is but it does look like the kind of thing that would hang around i guess we'll see yeah um, so there's a couple of like different interwoven storylines in this this episode. Uh, I guess just following Charlie's line a little bit here. Um, I thought this was I thought he had a really sweet storyline this episode. Uh, so he comes back to the town, um, and he they're they're at the they come back just during you know, during the funeral, which we can talk about in a minute, but. Um, oh yeah, I mean everything with uh, Charlie this episode is just heartbreaking, and that's oh, the first so great example. Yeah, well, he first he doesn't even want to go see the grave. He's like, I can't, I can't deal with this now. He says, Yeah, I'll go see Bill later. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I know. I was, I was by the time his last scene, I just couldn't, I couldn't anymore. Yeah. Um, but uh, so he goes to first. He goes to the uh, the place where um, uh, where Bill was shot, uh, and I love this this weird captain character who's so obsessed with telling people about he we didn't talk about him in the trial of Jack McCall I think that was the last time he showed up where he just wants to tell people about how he got 
his wrist got shot by the same bullet that went through. I mean, we didn't talk about him, yeah, but I remember him. But like, why? Why is he? Who is this guy? And in this case, he he immediately volunteers information and wants to go on with this weird. He has almost a a, a prose like way of describing what happened. He he implies he's a writer, um, and he just goes on about how yeah. you know he's never going to be able to write again, or you know, it's, it's the hand he writes with, and all. and yeah. Charlie's just sitting there like. Okay, I, I don't care. <laughs> He's one of those guys, it's a, you know, whenever like a major event happens, you always have people who are like, uh, and this was my personal part in it. I don't right. know if you've, if you've right, seen, right. if anyone's seen or heard the soundtrack to the musical Assassins, there's a great, really hilarious track called How I Saved Roosevelt, where it's um, all these different people who were present at um, uh, when, uh, I think, it, when Teddy Roosevelt uh, got shot before he took office. Who obviously, he lived. But it's all these different people who were who were there, like, explaining how, like, uh, oh, yeah, I bumped into the assailant. <laughs> and if I hadn't right, done right, that, right, right. he surely would have died. And, you know, right. like, talking to the press and, and getting their picture in the paper and everything. I feel like I've heard about this, this song, or... Because this doesn't... This sounds familiar to me. Yeah, um, it's a... But, yeah, exactly. Everyone wants their piece of the, the fame, of course. I mean, why wouldn't you? Yeah. Or like my uncle was there or whatever, you know, everyone wants mm-hmm. to be connected in some way. But I think it's also very emblematic of writers, you know, who want to, <laughs> to, to make, no, seriously, who want to make, they want to have this weird quirky thing like I'm going to go to, you know, my grave with the bullet in my wrist still from, the, you know, that killed, you know, yeah. that killed um, Bill Hickok. Like it's like his quirky thing that he wants people to identify him with. He's really into it uh, and no one really cares. Uh, Al didn't care, or I don't know if it was Al, whoever it was, but he was like, I want to be on the, the I want to testify, and they're like, yeah, I don't, nobody cares about you. That's a great uh, point. Here... Yeah, writers writers love having that one quirky thing about them, oh, yeah. um, because it, it's really easy to have that and not like a unique perspective. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, exactly, but yeah, right. he would put this in his Tinder bio if this happened today. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah, he would totally do that. That's funny. Yeah, and I like all the other characters, like, oh, for God's sake. <laughs> um. And it's so sad, too, because Charlie just wants to know about how his friend died, and yeah. this guy's just, you know, talking about and although he, whatever. Like, if you, you, when you listen to him, he's very clearly trying to mask, like, so I don't really know what happened, but he's, like, covering it in this kind of, like, flowery language. Right, right, um, right, right. But, like, if you really, like, when he gets down to it, it's really, like, he doesn't know any new information whatsoever. <laughs> he just wants to t- talk about how he was there. Yeah, and, like, useless information, like what his hand was and stuff, which, and nobody could verify anyway, so. Yeah, of course. Um. Yeah. So that was that was uh that was interesting. But then uh, we get this scene later where um, we see Jane talking to Bill uh, at his grave, which is already sad enough on its own. Um, and uh, by the way, I love how slow to the draw Jane is. By the way, yeah, <laughs> I think she's pretty hammered at this point. <laughs> um, and she takes a good like five seconds to get her gun out and pointed at whoever was sneaking up on her. So I feel like someone probably could have gotten the drop. Um, but uh, yeah, their conversation is just sad. And when they start talking to him and Charlie can't even get through what he's supposed to be saying. Um, oh, just incredibly depressing. Uh, and I, I kind of just generally about this episode felt like it was much more somber Um and not because it was sad. Like, there are sadder moments, I think, in other episodes, like when Bill died, for example. Um, but there's usually, within the episode, more humor to balance it out. And it's funny, you were mentioning before that you found this episode uh, a bit... You, you found it funny. Um, but there were I things actually, that I found funny in it, for sure. 
Yeah, but it's funny. I didn't really laugh so much at this episode. And then because it was so sort of neutral for me, when the sad moments happened, I was like, wow, this episode is just really a bummer, man. (laughs) (laughs) Um, By the way, this is Michael Angler, who I don't think has directed any other episodes of Deadwood yet. uh, I don't think so either. I'm going to look him up. Uh, I don't know much about his, uh, his background. Let's see. Um, <laughs> a couple Kimmy Schmidt episodes, interestingly oh, enough. No kidding. Uh, yeah, a lot of Thirty Rock too. And this is Let's his see. only Deadwood episode. Interesting. Which is in- yeah, it, it is interesting because he this is a really really well directed episode. Oh yeah, you really liked it. Um, I mean, I I think he did a phenomenal job. Yeah, it's interesting. I I I do think they did a good. He did a good job. I think he did new things with characters which were a bit different than they've been in the past um i think we saw a whole new side to al for example uh certainly seth uh so they got those actors got new things to do um timothy oliphant and uh yeah and ian mcshane um but anyway we'll talk about that in just a moment so yeah so the jane and charlie bits super sad uh really depressing um but moving on to i think probably the centerpiece of the episode uh would be Alma, Trixie, E.B., and uh, and Bullock mm-hmm. and their negotiation over the uh, claim. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so yeah, so there were there were funny I, I, there were there was the occasional funny moment, especially. Um, I really like when so Al and E.B. are negotiating, and E.B. actually manages to ne- manages to negotiate effectively with Al about the claim. He does show a little bit of um, perceptiveness about there being something else going on with the claim, although I don't feel like it really was that much of a leap to figure that Al has some, why else would he want to pay $20,000? Yeah, why would you care so much? Why yeah. is this still going on if it didn't matter? But it took, you know, however many, seven episodes for EB to figure that out. Yeah. Um, but I, <laughs> I like Al's, you know, was I a sleepy bee? You know, like, there's <laughs> all these weird lines he drops in the middle of this. And he just can't... Um, He's sort of. This is an episode where a lot of people are standing up to him, and I feel like he's kind of. It's unnerving to him, you know. Um, Eb stands up to him, and then later Trixie is pretty blatantly, you know, in direct opposition to his uh, whatever his orders or what he wants, and uh, really defiant. And I, I just, I think it's interesting seeing Al have to contend with people not being worried. I think it's particularly funny because Al hasn't killed anyone in a while, so maybe he hasn't <laughs> made it clear that he's willing to murder people yeah. across him. Um, I don't, you remember, like, in the first few episodes, he kills people constantly. Mm-hmm. And he sort of toned that down. I, I'm wondering if he's going to need to do that again to make sure people remember that he's kind of a murderer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so it's, it was really interesting seeing that. Um, yeah, I mean, God, E.B. Farnham, let me... T- <laughs> I can't even begin to tell you how much I love this character. <laughs> Just because he's so... What I love about him is that he's just so he's like impossibly stupid. <laughs> he's so and like you say he like he has this moment of perceptiveness when he kind of gets why Al still cares about the the claim. But like the the fact that he tells Al that he knows this secret and then uses it and like tries to press him for more money, like he knows who Al is. Like it's that's insane. And then, you know, the the fact that he would even try that and so blatantly like he's trying, like he thinks he's getting one over on Al. <laughs> he's well, he's I think just he's, crazy. He's, well, and I think Alan's to some degree kind of respects that Farnham's seeing the value in what he's doing and wants a little bit more. 
But I, I, I think the other thing is Farnham genu- genuinely thinks of himself or wants to think of himself as a partner and not a henchman, <laughs> um, which is undercut later when Seth literally calls him Al's water boy. Yeah. <laughs> which I feel kind of took the wind out of his sails. Um, but then again, Farnham really has no strategy for how to deal with it and immediately tries to press Alma at her funeral, at the funeral for her husband. Which that, I, mean, I laughed so, and I felt really, because that's like, you know, that kind of dark humor usually doesn't get me. But when he, in the middle of the hymn, he interrupts yeah. her to ask her about the claim, I was just rolling. Like, I couldn't believe that was happening. The audacity, it's just yeah. crazy. And she's just like, are you kidding me? <laughs> are we really, and then he comes again. I mean, yeah. He has no shame. Nope. No shame at all. I would never <laughs> do that. I don't care how much money is involved. That's crazy. I mean, I understand it at this point it's quite a bit, especially for the time, um, that he's it's sort of up in the air and Seth's going to make life very difficult. But man. Yeah, um, and it's not even just like, you know, the uh, the impropriety of it. It's like, ima- imagine thinking that that would work. Right. Like, there's just no way that that's going to, like, she, all of a sudden she's going to be like, you know what, I know it is my husband's funeral, but... I think this is the right time to have this conversation. Yeah, just, wow. I mean, even, I and mean, I understand that he's worried about Seth coming back. Why doesn't he, I mean, assuming Seth isn't going to immediately walk up to, but although he does, um, but, you know, I would have given it just a little bit of time and tried to corner her and, and get the answer just a little bit later. I mean, wow. Terrible, terrible timing. Um, <laughs> but speaking of Alma, I think this is interesting. So this is the Alma Garrett that I'm much more familiar with. Um, you know, sort of off of opium, uh, and the one I remember. Um, so, or I guess laudanum in this case, but similar in an opioid. Uh, what do you think of her? She's almost a brand new character in a lot of ways. She really is, and I think, um, I think uh, Seth remarks upon that. They remark upon changes in each other, right? Which right. is nice. Um, <laughs> but no, she is. She's very well. It's funny because she's she's different and she's not. She still has the same. What last you know, the conversation with Trixie at the end of the episode kind of right. reveals that she's still carrying some of the same uh, biases and and certain a certain perspective that doesn't you know that doesn't change because she's now sobered up. No, right. but she is very much. She, she's clearly much. I mean, she's much more alert for one thing. Um, much more. Uh, I don't know if defiant is the right word, but she's much, you know, she's willing to uh, engage with people in a very different way and in a much more active way than she yeah, has Yeah, she's before. also willing to take her on responsibility and things. Like, she's, yeah. she doesn't feel like she needs Seth to be her proxy anymore, although she does eventually relent and let him stay on. Uh, and she feels like she can take care of the kid, uh, which is new. Um, I think that she's sort of implying that she is she is willing to do that. So I think there's, yeah, it's she's got a lot more self. Um, uh, she's got more self control, obviously, but she's also got more self um, motivation and and uh, I don't know. She's got a better understanding of who she is, and I think she's she's willing to navigate weirdly willing to navigate Deadwood. Um, she doesn't feel any particular, as we see at the end, she has no particular desire to leave, even though everyone's still telling her to leave. And everyone's like, this, this is a bad place and you shouldn't be here. She kind of thinks that she can handle it, uh, which is really interesting. Um, especially just, I was thinking about our conversations about her and her husband earlier on and whether or not she was going to leave. And um, the fact that she doesn't seem like she's really interested in doing that does make it interesting to see how she's going to fit into the town. 
It, well, especially after the final scene, I think we'll see if that changes her uh, her outlook in any way. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Definitely, yeah. Um, so that's very interesting, and I definitely want to talk about that. Uh, so we have that end of things. So we have Alma, who's who's trying to. Well, first of all, she's also doing interesting things. Like she she seems. I said this was sort of Alma at her fullest power, right? So she's <laughs> playing matchmaker weirdly with Trixie and Saul. Yeah, that was. <laughs> she seems very interested in in that partnership which is inter- uh definitely a an odd pairing but something that i think we we haven't really talked about because it was there were such brief moments but there definitely does seem to be s- some attraction yeah. between Saul and and uh Trixie it's, and it's not it's not one way which is interesting um so that that's that's definitely a uh one point uh and then the other thing is is her affection for Seth seems to be much more obvious at this point yeah definitely um they're straight up flirting mm-hmm. in uh in the scene where they first start talking which is also funny too because seth's completely disheveled and you know she also just buried her husband she just buried her husband yeah she doesn't seem ter- i mean she seems serious she takes it seriously but she doesn't seem sad i mean it, it has been it's been you know however long it's been right what i don't know, probably like a month or longer and she was also kind of drugged out through most of their marriage yeah, so I don't know how much of it she remembers uh, in that regard, um, but it's good to point out here again for the time difference that you know now that she's she's the, the last we saw her she was recovering and now she's pretty much seems to be okay. So I think that's a that's a bit of a, a change. Um, and and the other end of this, of course, is Bullock being like he's smiling, he's happy. That was unnerving to me. It was very <laughs> weird to see him in any way not angry or. Even when he goes to challenge Alec towards the end, he's not terribly aggressive. He makes threats. He's you know being very clear about him, his uh, his perspective, but he's not ready to jump across the table and kill Al the way he was you know in that first scene where they have together where he's trying to um, where they're trying to negotiate for the lot for the hardware store. Yeah, uh, it's almost like he's playing Al's game in that scene. Like he's kind of. Yeah, he's more willing to, you know, he's got a better read on him. And he's also not coming in just furious with everyone constantly. It's <laughs> just very different. Um, the other thing is the hardware store is built. Yeah. Um, so it's like a whole building now. You know, it was just a tent at one point. So it's kind of cool to see. I mean, that's the thing about the show I find so interesting. Like, we've seen that go from a lot that needed to be sold to, like, a tent to, you know, a, a frame that they were building. Um, that Bill was working on at one point, and uh, now it's like a fully-fledged building. And it's just cool to see that evolve over the course of just seven episodes. Like, the, the, this is a whole part of the town that's changed. Uh, I just, I really enjoy that that aspect of the, the show, seeing it literally be built, uh, not just in terms of the community, but um, in terms of the structures in it. Um, so that's cool. Uh, I, like, I like that Saul uh, really is making it very clear to he, clear he has a lot of affection for Trixie and it's interesting to see her split feelings on it cuz she's got this allegiance to Al of course and of course Al has his own affection for her um yeah I was what do you think about this uh or was particularly about Trixie and, and her relationship with Al in this episode um well you know we've talked so much about their relationship being mysterious or like yep. vague. 
I think it's a lot, I don't think it's that so much anymore. I think it's a lot. I think it's pretty clear where they where they stand. Um, it's not clear yet why uh, Trixie is really the only person in town who's willing to stand up to him in any way. Um, and is really so fearless in a way. You know, like Farnham is is also fearless, but out of like we said, stupidity more than <laughs> more than anything else. Trixie's certainly not stupid. Right. But she seems to have a bead on him that nobody else does for for some reason. Uh she seems to feel like she genuinely has one over on him. And, and I, she does. Well, I think she she's just, you know, I think she realizes she's actually quite valuable to him in a lot of ways. He doesn't have he doesn't have a lot of female friends. <laughs> he doesn't have a lot of female confidants and certainly he's not going to be able to take some random prostitute and make her into a spy uh for him. And so she's really very uniquely positioned to be this person who can nobody else could do what she did with Alma. Uh and she does demonstrate her value to him. Obviously she has her own personal value, but her, her value to him in saying, you know, I can be there and still report on what's going on to you if you need it. Um the other thing I think is really interesting about her in this episode is I think a lot of this episode is really constructed around Trixie uh, more than anyone else. And it goes, it, it's, it's exhibited in a bunch of different ways. Uh, and I think the last conversation she has with Alma is really what makes it clear. But it's something we've seen uh, clues to throughout the series so far. And I think she, it comes down to she really... On one hand, she feels locked into this life that she has. She doesn't have any family or anything to go back to, and she really feels uh, trapped in this life, and it's the only thing she really knows. Um, and she doesn't. She's too scared to try something else. She doesn't want to because she doesn't know if she could do it or whatever the case is. On the other hand, she does realize that it's very limiting. What she's you know, her position in life. And I think she sees herself in this girl, this little girl. And I think she really doesn't want her to end up in the same position because she also has no family now. She also has no, and, and we see this like clues throughout this episode, right? So when they're having, um, when at the funeral, she's, she's off with the little girl and she's, she's, um, uh, playing with the flowers and naming them after members of her family who died. And I think Trixie's, it's resonating with Trixie and she's seeing that there's this um, because of this connection. And I, and it's not a lot. And they even mention at some point that I think Saul says, or is it Saul or somebody else points out that they look related, like they could be related. And I, I think, think that's Saul. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's Saul. And, it, and I think that that hits home for her and she's, she doesn't want the same thing to happen where she, he gets, uh, where she gets locked into this, this life of prostitution. And we even see with the, the, the siblings who we've got to talk about, but we see that yeah. as soon as like somebody, you know, a pretty young blonde woman shows up immediately, everyone wants to, you know, with no family to speak of aside from a brother that they immediately want to turn her, you know, into a prostitute. So clearly that's a very real possibility for this this kid in this town. And so I think Trixie immediately wants to get her out. And I think she's frustrated with Alma that Alma doesn't see the reality of the situation. Yeah, well, I, uh, that whole scene is... What I love is what... The breaking point for Trixie in that scene is that Alma, Alma suggests that, like, oh, I'll send you to New York City and I'll stay here. Mm-hmm. And it's like... I think there's a privilege element to that. Oh, yes. that that is upsetting. I mean, <laughs> just, a <bit. laughs> just a little bit, yeah. That that's really upsetting. Trixie is like the idea that Alma, she, 
I'm, I'm gonna say keep. I'm gonna keep saying Alamo just because that's how I pronounce vowels. I know it, that's not how it's actually said, but I can't <laughs> help it. Um, the the fact uh, the fact that she is basically she has the ability to leave at any time she wants. She can escape this, you know, right. at will basically uh, at any time. And Trixie doesn't have that ability. So the fact that it's she's being offered so cavalierly, like, oh yeah, I'll just send you away. And Trix, Trixie's like. That, that's not how my life works. That's not how my world works. Right. The fact that you would just, you know, the fact that you have the ability to do, to do that and you would do it for me, like that infuriates her. It does. And it's funny because it's almost a self-imposed restriction. She really does have the ability to escape. But she's, I think there's some, she's scared. She's frustrated with the ability of someone else to be able to do that for her. Uh, and I, she's also clearly not somebody who likes to be, coddled or taken care of or whatever the case is she's very self-possessed that's the word i was looking for earlier possessed self-possessed she's very self-possessed and almost starting becoming more self-possessed as well um in this episode that was what i was trying to get across earlier but um trixie's very self-possessed and doesn't uh and self-sufficient it doesn't feel like she needs someone else to take care of her um so she she feels it finds it very patronizing in this case um, yeah that's that's the word i was looking for <laughs> patronizing yeah um so i think yeah, I completely agree. I think she's just she's really thrown off by this this offer. Um, that said, you do see an interesting moment earlier when uh, when she's in the hardware store uh, with Saul, and Saul makes a some like offhand joke comment. Oh, you should see if you can get the accounts to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and she does sort of look at the papers like, hmm, you know, like maybe maybe it could. And we don't really know what Trixie's abilities are beyond her you know, networking, social abilities that we've seen so far. So that'll be interesting as well to see if how much time she ends up spending with Saul in the hardware store, because while she seems to be done with Alma, (laughs) she doesn't seem to be necessarily done with uh, hanging out with Saul. So that'll be, that'll be interesting to see as that develops as well. I also, there's also a self-esteem issue, I think possibly with Trixie. Definitely, yeah. Like what she feels, there's something, uh, there's something about what she feels like she deserves in terms of her like station in life. Right, exactly. That's exactly what. In I'm terms thinking. of how yeah. she, res- you know, based on how she responds to uh, to Alma's offer, like she doesn't feel like she deserves anything better than what she has. She is not someone who, you know, she she's not a very aspirational person, um, and that you know, that doesn't extend to a sort of like a, a submissive attitude. Certainly, as we see with Al, um, but it doesn't mean that like she's very much aware that. Uh, there's not. There's only so much higher she can climb in this world, given who she is. Um, and right, I think and I think, she, I think she likes the idea that she can use her status as it is to do th- certain things, but I think she has limits on how far she's willing to take it, and I think she's worried about what might happen if she tries to reach beyond her station to a certain point. Exactly, yeah. So that's definitely interesting. Um, so yeah, I think that basically sums up that, that storyline. I didn't think that was we were going to get through that so quickly. Um <laughs> So what do you think of the siblings? Oh, wow. Um, Flora and uh, Miles. First of all, I was not expecting... (laughs) I I was not expecting to see new characters. I was not expecting to see um, this particular uh, uh, actress (laughs) on the show. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, all these, these, like... um, All these these character actors... Or, like, not character actors, but, like, um, more familiar actors uh, keep popping up. 
And um, I'm excited to see who it'll be next, especially like TV actors, like people I know from other shows who would be who would go on to be more famous on other shows. Um, keep popping up. And here's another uh, great example with um, is it Chris Kristen Bell? Yeah, Kristen Bell. Kristen Bell. Yeah. Yeah. Kristen Bell uh, from, uh, of course, Veronica Mars and uh, Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Mm-hmm. Um, she's uh, she's great. And I, I actually forgot. I remembered these two characters very fondly from my memory of the show but i did not remember uh who played who uh in this but uh yeah it's cool um kristen bell of all people uh to show up here so yeah so i actually wasn't sure in this episode if we were going to get the hint as to their ulterior motives or who they are um that we got uh right towards the end of this episode uh so i was worried i was gonna have to do this whole podcast going like oh yeah they seem sweet <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't remember what happened. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's cool, and it's I like the fact that they used Kristen Bell, who even now, you know, she's she's shorter and and you know she kind of like that Ellen Page type thing, where she, Ellen Page always seemed to play young people, no matter how old she got, you know, and she mm-hmm. she still does. She always plays like you know a teenager or whatever, and she's like in her thirties. <laughs> um, so it's interesting they cast uh, Kristen Bell in this role because she she definitely looks much younger, and I don't actually remember or know how old flora is or is supposed to be or probably like 16 know. right i feel like i remember them someone saying something like that but or that's the impression i got like around there right something like that and then but like how old the actual character is like whoever you know because she clearly they're clearly casing the joint you know, you know that's a great point i hadn't even considered that but of like of course that, that seems obvious now yeah just pretending to be young you know yes yeah. and lost um They've got a great story, though. What a great uh, way to, and there's no way to verify it. What, you know, just hit. Yeah, exactly. Up. That's another great example of uh, the, something they've used on the show a lot. Is like there's no way to, yeah, like you said, verify what someone is saying whatsoever. Um, that you know, they just they have uh, a picture, and right. no people have basically no choice but to take them at their word. And it sounds um, plausible, right? That they're, yeah, that absolutely. They're like presumably, this is something that happens all the time. Like you. Sure. You go out to make a claim, and then you send for your family when you have the money. And it makes um, them sympathetic, and they want to help you out. At least yeah, well, especially because they construct the story in such a way where it's clear that this fictional father has abandoned them. Um, and right. they just seem like these sweet, naive kids who, who don't know any better. Right, um, and, exactly. and they continue to really play up that that whole sweet, naive thing. Um, right. Especially Flora later with with Joni. Um, and, and Miles with Al. Right. But yeah, it's <laughs> you definitely get that, and you get uh, we got to talk about that. But um, you also get sort of, um, but this is why I think she's older, and that's because of that scene right at the beginning where um, Flora is uh, clearly making Dan d- oh, trying yeah. to induce affection. Um, so that and so well shot, have... by the way, the way it um, the camera goes like it really emphasizes the way that she's kind of leaning into him mm-hmm. and then how it uh it kind of goes down from his from his head like down their bodies to to their hands over right. the picture oh right, my exactly. god so good <laughs> yeah and you start to but that was that that's like a tip off right there what is going on here with this character um so were you suspecting that at all as you No were? not at all oh, wow. um Mostly because there are so few characters on this show who have that kind of like, like I was kind of expecting that out of Alma at the beginning of the series that that she would be that that kind of character who was just like, um, 
you know, like uh, she doesn't really know how the, the, this part of the world works, and she's right, gonna right. learn. But she's not that kind of character at all. Um, she's a lot more savvy. And right. um, you know, we have Farnham, who's kind of gormless in his own way, but he's 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 aware of the way that Deadwood operates because he's lives he's lived there. Oh yeah. Um, so I've, he fits he fits right in. Yeah, and and you know, the Reverend kind of has his thing going on, but he's a little more you know, he's kind of uh, separate from those kind of goings on. Uh, yeah. But yeah, so I've, I was kind of waiting for the characters to appear who would be the uh, you know, they're just so innocent and they're so unaware of the uh, the the violence and the depravity of. Uh, of the real world, and I, I, as soon as these two showed up, I was like, "Oh well, this is that's it," you know. Especially when you know, like you said, immediately the Al is making eyes at her as a as a potential prostitute. Right, right. Um, and then she goes to the Bella Union, and it's like, of course, well, it's the exact same thing's going to happen over there, of course. Right. So yeah, it was a totally and, and yeah, like I said, they they two of them play it up in every scene we see them, especially. Um, not even especially like both of them do it. Miles does it great in that scene with Al where he's, oh, yeah. uh, you know, you know, like we're out. And what's great is that Al, Al is very clearly like playing to him. Like when he makes the, the second offer, like, uh, just, so do you think your steward want to work here? And Miles just goes, Oh, you're joking. And it's like, Oh yeah, of course I'm joking. Such a thing, yeah. yeah, exactly. But it's, a, it's the, that great, you know, save, that everyone does where it's like if they if you say something and it doesn't get the response you want just pretend you weren't saying it seriously oh yeah just play it off like oh yeah yeah no it's oh yeah no of course no <laughs> i would never i would never say the thing that i just said never exactly <laughs> um, um yeah so that was and you know and it's yeah it's great because he's almost treating him like a he's almost like leaning into this kind of mentor position which I don't think he means. I don't think. I think the only person he really means that with is is with Dan, like we saw in the trial episode. Right. Um. But he's definitely like, uh, trying to portray himself as this kind of you know. Well, I mean, like uh, as a father figure, I think pretty obviously. I think that's a. I think he, I think he immediately saw that opening, um, for Miles. <laughs> uh. So and it's great. But of course, what we learn later is that Miles is kind of playing him too right right of course um, he's just and, like oh yeah i just want to learn or I just, <laughs> um yeah and i i like uh and i also like but i i on one hand i agree with you and i i think that it there obviously al has this ul- ulterior motive um but i think there's there's two aspects to that i think first of all there seems to be a genuine affection he has for them because they're so young um and their siblings which of course we learned he does have a sibling of his own so I think he does see a little bit of that for himself. You know, I think he, d- I, this is of course, assuming they're even related. <laughs> Who the hell knows? <laughs> um, but, uh, because I mean, why, why, you know, if they're not really looking for their dad, then for all we know, that entire story is fabricated. Um, but, uh, but I think to him, it's, it certainly looks like, uh, you know these 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 kids who are sort of lost, and I think he does see a little bit of that, um, and he sees a little bit of himself in that situation, and so that's kind of sweet. And the other thing is, um, while he does want her to be a prostitute, which is perhaps not the most flattering thing to uh, want for someone, uh, especially a teenager. I mean, I know it's uh, olden times, but come on. I know he is he is a little sort of, but on the other hand, um, you know he did. He does sort of, I think, see himself as a little bit of a savior for the women he's taken in. 
Oh, definitely. He, yeah. he feels like he, he who were lost and didn't have family, and he sort of gave them a place to be and to stay and to, to you know, housing and stuff. I mean, well, it's you know, it seems like it's such a horrible thing to say. Like, you know, you should be grateful that you have housing. It's the frontier, and honestly, a safe place to live and and protection from, you know, the elements and other people and actors, bad actors, and the rest of it, uh, is not a small uh, price, you know, for someone, you know. At, for these for these people so I, I think he does genuinely feel like he could save her you know in a way which again in his own twisted logic probably was not entirely malevolent um so yeah i do i, I find their relationship really interesting and i and i also think that he does seem to have some affection for uh miles um again probably with ulterior motives but he does seem to have some affection for him yeah um yeah and then we have um Flora and Joni having their own kind of parallel relationship. Yeah, that's also really interesting too. Um, really interesting that. Well, first of all, Flora immediately points out that Joni doesn't seem happy, which is yeah. not the first time we've heard that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the hypocrisy of being like, you have to look happy all the time, and she's like, mm, you're not. So. <laughs> uh, and then there's also this weird, almost flirtation with between them too. Yeah, that was very like I, yeah, that was very strange. <laughs> that was extremely that, strange. You found that weird, yeah. I mean, well, only I mean, because only because as far as uh, Joni knows, she's a teenager. Well, I, but I think it's more coming from Flora. She sort of like Joni sort of pushes past it, but I think that there is that element to it, and we're not actually all that clear on Joni's sexuality. Well, I mean, yeah, the sexuality is not. Uh, not the what issue, I'm finding weird about it, no. no, no I and I mean, you know, you say Flora initiates it, but the I think the I think Joni initiates it when she goes, um, you know, you have to smile because you have to always be smiling because you never know who's into you or whatever. Right. You know, very she has that very pointedly, um, or I think Flora takes it very pointedly. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's it was strange. I think certainly we're going to see more of that given her now, what we know about Flora now that she's right. looking to exploit all of these people. Right. Um, so I think that's certainly going to be, she's going to see that as, as an in. And it's interesting to see the trust develop and the, tr- cause it's also, you know, there's a frontier. No one trusts anyone. And yeah. uh, it's very, you know, some random two people like adults came into town. Um, people probably wouldn't be as likely to trust them uh, the way they're trusting these kids, but because they're kids, they're letting their guard down in a way that they wouldn't normally, especially in Deadwood of all places. So I think it's, even Al is, you know, even Al's just like, yeah, sure. Show you around, let you, you know, basically case out the entire place so that you can know exactly how to, (laughs) whatever their plan is, you know, to, it's not really clear what they're trying to do. He just, they just say, well, why don't we hit both of them? And that's all. Yeah, well, they're they're good. I mean, yeah, they, we get the impression that they're like you know, well, they're clearly like con artists, probably like robbers, maybe, um, or maybe they're just looking. You know, maybe they're not looking to rob. Maybe it's just a con job, and they're looking to kind of uh, swindle them in some way. I guess we'll see. I mean, we'll definitely see going forward. We, you know, I I, I do remember that we do see. Um, I don't remember exactly <laughs> how it goes down, but I do have I have some inkling that uh, this this will develop. Um, so yeah, yeah I'm very I don't think they're just going to bring this up and then we'll never see these two again. <laughs> yeah, actually, next episode they they they're just dead. Uh, <laughs> they die. Um, speaking of the dead, just one last point, uh, really, with a focus on um, the sick tent and Jane, yeah, um, and uh, the Reverend and, and the doc, the doctor. So first of all, Andy's back, and while he, <laughs> he looks a little odd, um, 
I also like that Jane refers to him as the frog-faced one. <laughs> like, <laughs> such a rude thing to say, but yeah. Um, he's healthy. He does seem appreciative to Jane, although he doesn't seem to go all the way, go so far as to say thank you. Um, he gives her a nickname, right? Is that That's him who does that, right? Yeah, he says something, because Calamity Jane. Yeah, that's her. That's her name historically, that's and he says like, if name. next time there's a calamity, I'll I'll go asking for Jane. Like wink. Yeah, right, right. Well, and I couldn't tell if that was supposed to be, like he's like, I know your name is like you're known as calamity. Yeah, Jane. I mean, I, I got the impression that this was like or... a, a wink and a nod to her, you know, as a historical figure, and maybe not literally like because we haven't heard her referred to that thus far. So we have not, and they do say Wild Bill all the time. So yeah. I guess. Yeah, so I guess not. But I, historically, yeah, she definitely was uh, Calamity Jane. So, yeah, it's kind of an interesting little moment. And I also like how proud she is of the fact that he's healthy. He's like, she's mm-hmm. like, you know, when I look after people, they survive. Then, of course, the guy di- the other guy dies, um, yeah. which she's genuinely upset yeah, about. Yeah, she seems really, like, um, really upset by that, yeah. Uh, which I think is, is interesting. that, And I think she's beginning to come to grips with the fact that she can't save everyone, which is something I think she's not used to. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just that that reality of being in charge of people's lives and you know them slipping away, which is, you know, she's had to learn really hard with Bill, and now she's learning it with other people too. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of an interesting dynamic. Uh, and then the Reverend, um, yeah, he seems to be having a difficult time. <laughs> yeah, I'm a bit worried about him. Mm. Uh, well, we get a little, we get a suggestion of what's actually going on, which is interesting. That, right, uh, that there's a. The doctor said, yeah, he might have a brain lesion, which I don't, I mean, I don't know anything about, let me preface this by saying, I know nothing about medicine or medical history, <laughs> but it seemed like, was that a thing that people knew about back then? I don't know. I have this I have this uh, historical bias where I feel like too many things, uh, I just have this impression that too many things are uh, recent discoveries. Like, right, I, I think right, it's right. probably real, you know, I, I assume that in the actual history brain lesions were a thing people knew about because obviously if someone dies it's you not could, like you advanced technology to just look at open their head up and look at their brain right exactly. probably doing that for a while um but when I, when I first heard him say that i was like mm, that's that seems recent to me um I, I think it's it's certainly almost certainly not but uh um, i think i think it's that's not unusual i think the only thing that might be anachronistic i don't know though and i'm not an ex- while i i know a bit about biology i don't know much about the history of medicine um in any great detail uh, the only thing that might be anachronistic is the linking of a brain lesion or a tumor or whatever to neural activity like that the way he's like oh that's why you're think you're talking to god or whatever that um, was that's a good point yeah so that might be the connection that might be a, a little pushing you. I will say that... And so also, that, like, rude. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. That, that, we got to talk about the conversation because it's great, but um, I will just... The last thing I'll say about this in terms of medical history, I know in... Um, I don't actually know what year this is supposed to be set, but it's the 1800s? Like, 18... Well, it's it's post... Uh, Civil War. Because uh, we saw the picture of Lincoln. Right. Uh, so it's probably, like, 18... 18 late 1860s, early 1870s? Right, so I know that in the early 1800s, at least, um, so in the the books that I'm reading, the this the Aubrey Maturin, the naval warfare ones, um, the surgeon uh, is uh, often does like brain related, uh, not not just after death, but corrections. So he'll do the metal plate in the head, kind of the coin, you know, opening the skull, relieving pressure, putting the coin in, kind of thing to 
and and them surviving, not just dying, you know, instantly. So um, it's at least as far back as the year 18, and that those books are very historically on point for the most part. So um, clearly, they had some idea of how the brain worked on a very like surface level. Obviously, they couldn't do cat scans and things, but um, so yeah, I guess uh, I guess it's a thing. And by the way, uh, Doc Cochran does make some comments about the brain earlier in the first episode when he's doing. Oh, that's right. Of course. So he does have some idea of how the brain works in that regard. Um, but yeah, so this conversation he has with the, the Reverend is very uh, pointed. He's making, I think he makes a really compelling argument if he's a little, little uh, callous about it. Um, but uh, he's basically, you know, you're not, you have, like, I think you have a brain tumor. You're not, uh, you're not talking to God. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the Reverend's like, well, maybe this is like a roundabout thing and he's like well maybe also he just wants you to rest so maybe you should just go sleep (laughs) (laughs) which is a good point um and i think it's interesting to see that resonate uh with the reverend but i am uh it doesn't look great i'll say that he doesn't know his prospects are not i don't know if there's a lot i mean we talk about (laughs) medical science um treatment of a brain lesion i can't imagine was uh something that many doctors were equipped to do right yeah I mentioned they did some brain surgery in this in this book, and I'm sure it was a thing that happened. But I don't think you know removing a brain tumor is something that was quite. I don't know how feasible that was um, at the time. That's that's a pretty big a pretty big deal. Um, so there's that, and then oh, there was one other thing I wanted to bring up about this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> I remember a couple of episodes ago, you were you were saying um, this was towards the beginning where you're like. I think it would be, you know, I'm going to be really sad if anything happens to the Reverend or I think it was the journalist, I think Merrick or something, because they were so naive and, and sort of happy people. Yeah. And I don't want it to be that kind of show where good people just die or, or get sick or whatever. And I'm like thinking about this brain tumor going, you know, hmm. yeah, and I just didn't say anything because <laughs> I don't, you know, who knows, maybe he'll, you know, a recovery or, you know, maybe he'll, maybe uh the doctor will be able to do some sort of surgery or it's not really clear what his capabilities are in that area um the other thing that's interesting is they never really they make a pretty clear point about how jane is immune to um and by the way they also talk about how alma seems pretty she's like oh i'm not worried about smallpox i have an immunization um but they make an interesting point about um how jane you know is immune to this and she doesn't have to worry about it but they never really like the reverend just wanders into the tent and starts helping out without them figuring out if he's immune at all. Yeah. Which I, I find kind of interesting. He's really handling these patients and I feel like he, he, maybe he'll just be lucky and he'll, he'll be immune to it, but you know, he could also catch, you know, smallpox, I would imagine. Um, mm. I know he feels like he has to be there, but he's not, he's not just sitting there and praying with them. He's physically handling them, which I think um, may also have, bad consequences as well. Well, I guess we'll see. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that, that about sums it up. Uh, what's, uh, what do we got next week? Ooh, let's see. Um, oh, one more page. <laughs> um, next week, episode eight is, Oh, this is the best title. Suffer the little children. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, I can think of one little child. Um, Who's a character so far who I do not want to... I don't want any of the... I don't want any little children to suffer in general. I definitely don't want this particular one to. Um, so. I think 
but I think it also could refer to the supposed children. Yeah. Um, which I think would make sense given that I will say this. So this episode sort of, so we closed off a little bit of the, uh, Jack McCall, um, by the way, uh, it was kind of funny to see Jane react to the fact that they just passed Jack McCall on to the yeah. law enforcement people. Like, really? <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so we sort of closed off the Jack McCall Bill storyline a little bit. And now we're... And the other thing that's cool is these... So in Game of Thrones, everything follows a character's storyline for a little bit. Um, and in this case, we follow like an arc, like a narrative arc for a while. It's a bit different. It's not just like Bullock's Ark or Alma's Ark. It's it's like everyone's enraptured in this or sort of wrapped up in whatever you know big thing is happening, and it feels a lot like the way an event might pass through a town. Like now everyone's you know all caught up in whatever's going on with the plague, or now everyone's caught up in you know, some major death in the town, and now everyone's caught up in. Um, but I think this the arrival of these the time gap, the time jump. The closing off of the old storylines, um, uh, Brom Garrett's funeral and all the rest of it, and now moving into these supposed kids uh, who are in town, and and that is sort of a new, um, a new chapter. And I think that we'll see a little bit of a narrative arc there too. Although I don't know how long. I don't know if it'll be like as big or small or or what the case will be. But I'm very interested to see how that goes, um, and also seeing the repositioning of people in the town as we figure out where the kid ends up. Um, if the kid ends up staying with Alma, or also, I think they should name her at some point. She has all her family have names. Certainly, she probably has. A well, name yeah, well, Trixie uh, says at the end of the episode, like she's gonna say her name soon. Oh, she's gonna say her name, right? Oh, I, I thought she, she was said your name. I thought she was talking about Alma. The I think the synopsis that I'm looking at says it's her name. Oh, okay, maybe that's maybe that's it. So maybe we'll actually know. Which I find funny because she's named everyone else in her family, and they're all sort of yeah. typical. Uh, that scene, speaking of scenes that broke my heart, I mean, when they're at the funeral and she's laying out the flowers for her family. Oh, so Jesus. Ugh. <laughs> it's really sad, and and like I said, I think it's it's I think it hits home for Trixie in a way too, because we don't really know her past, but clearly, you know, you don't just end up where she is at, at Al's, you know, at the gym. <laughs> mm. um, oh, the one last thing I just wanted to point out was kind of funny. Speaking of the gym, uh, speaking of. Hey, gem and jewel I always associate for some reason. Uh-huh. Um but I liked uh I liked Al telling uh, Miles he has to learn a special sweeping technique. Um and yeah. then he cuts to Jewel Jewel's um sweeping between the stairs. Uh I don't know, it seems efficient enough. Um but uh Well speaking yeah, of Al um we get more you know soon. seemingly feeling like he's taking people in. We don't really know the story of uh Jewel. Yeah, but I think that's seems... probably what's going on there. That's really interesting, isn't it? Um yeah. cuz like I don't know, maybe she's really efficient at her her job. I who, who knows, but um, he that's a one female person I can think of in this in his in Al's universe that he didn't go. You can be a prostitute, uh, too. So I think um, I guess aside from Alma, who obviously that was never gonna happen, but it's really interesting to see uh, yeah, that character and and so I think there is a level of affection he has for people who are in a bad place, like you know their family's dead or whatever. So like these kids or again alleged kids. Or um, Jewel's situation, whatever it was, and why why she, why he took her in uh, as well. And I do wonder if it has something to do with his his brother. I guess his brother was the one who had the seizures. Um, mm-hmm. If maybe that connects in some way, or or what the case is, because we don't we know he had seizures, but we don't know if he was like 
someone who's having epileptic seizures or somebody who had um you know any number of things it can be multiple sclerosis or um anything really and then also has seizures like we don't we don't really know what the circumstances were at all um, so yeah i'd love to see more of jewel let's get more jewel in the uh, getting more jewel in the show mm. all right um so i think uh, so suffer the little uh, suffer the little children next week more to it